Welcome to Queer by Candlelight, hosted by Elizabeth Crane and Dahlia Kumar. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Crane, and at last, my arm is complete again. And I'm Dahlia Kumar, and I might be baking some humans into pies? I'm not sure. And this week we are discussing the 1982 filmed stage musical Sweeney Todd, The Demon Barber of Fleet Street. We will be spoiling the entire plot, so don't listen if you care about knowing what happens. They kind of tell you in the first song, though, not gonna lie. So this musical is both the music and lyrics are written by Stephen Sondheim, our lord and savior. The book is by Hugh Wheeler, which is just a fancy way to say the script that's not the music, uh, and it's directed by Harold Prince. It's also based on a 1973 play by Christopher Bond, but then that play was based on a Victorian penny dreadful called The String of Pearls. This musical is incredibly iconic and has been popular since it first came out, as it won both the Tony and Olivier Awards for Best New Musical and has been revived about five billion times. The musical opens with a factory whistle and the ballad of Sweeney Todd as an ensemble member warns the audience to attend the tale of Sweeney Todd and describes Sweeney as a successful and cunning murderer. During this number, we see Sweeney Todd's body being carried across stage and it's thrown into a furnace. Everyone then starts chanting Sweeney and they gather around the doors of the furnace. Sweeney Todd then steps out of the furnace and starts to talk about what happened in third person, saying that he wouldn't want to ruin the play um, and breaks the fourth wall. The actual plot of the play begins with the young sailor Antony arriving in London by boat with Sweeney Todd in tow, and a subtitle tells us that it's London 1846. Antony sings the song No Place Like London and describes how no matter how many wonderful places he's sailed, London will always be the best. However, Sweeney disagrees and says that Antony is just optimistic because he's young. Sweeney declares that he's going to split up from Antony, but that he'll never forget how Antony saved his life. However, Antony says that anyone would have saved a person about to drown, and says that Sweeney was found tossing on a raft in the open ocean. Then a beggar woman appears, asking for alms, which Antony gives her. Then she asks Antony if he wants to have sex. Antony turns around, and she moves on to asking... Sweeney for alms, stopping to say that she thinks she's met him before, but Sweeney chases her off. Sweeney continues the song No Place Like London by saying that London shows how cruel the rich are for preying off the poor, and declares that their cruelty is just as wondrous as the places Antony has sailed. Then Sweeney sings A Barber and His Wife, uh, which talks about how he used to have a young and beautiful wife who he was completely devoted to. But the judge wanted to take his wife from him, and he was too naive to protect her. He then tells Anthony that it was too long ago for anyone to know what happened anymore, but that he can be found around Fleet Street if Anthony needs to find him. Sweeney then goes to Mrs. Lovett's pie shop, where Mrs. Lovett sings, 
the worst pies in London and sings about how she hasn't seen a customer in weeks and how her pies are the worst in London because she doesn't have any ingredients since she can't afford any meat. She also talks about other pie shops who have become so desperate that they're using cat meat and implies that she would have also done the same, but she's too slow to actually catch the cats. Mrs. Lovett is so iconic. She is. I love her. Angela Lansbury is so iconic. I love her. I miss her. I don't know her, but I miss her. I think she's so fun. I just, I really like her voice and the way she portrays the character. Yeah, it's so, like, silly and quirky, which is great because this musical is dark and depressing. And Mrs. Lovett is like, ah, yes, it's me. I'm having fun. Popping pussies into pies. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> sorry that's like my favorite that one that one line from that song it's i'm like so it's, funny. So funny. it's so funny i love it <laughs> it's it's kind of morbid but the way she says it you know you just you just gotta love it so sweeney questions why mrs lovett isn't renting out her upstairs room if she's so desperate for income but she says she's afraid to go near it because there's a rumor that it's haunted People think it's haunted because something bad happened there many years ago, which then triggers the musical number Poor Thing, with Mrs. Lovett describing how a beautiful and successful barber named Benjamin Barker used to use the upstairs room. Barker was in prison for life because Judge Turpin and his beetle, which I looked up, and apparently it's some sort of law enforcement official that is a lackey for either a judge or a church member, They both wanted the barber's wife for themselves, and so they arrested Barker to get him out of the way after they realized the wife wasn't interested in them. The wife was left with a year-old child named Joanna to care for alone after Barker was arrested. The judge invites the wife to a party at his house after Barker left, and he raped her at the ball. Sweeney screams upon hearing her fate, and Mrs. Lovett confirms that he is in fact Benjamin Barker returned. Sweeney says that he goes by Sweeney Todd now and demands to know where his wife Lucy is. Mrs. Lovett says Lucy poisoned herself with arsenic despite Mrs. Lovett's attempt to help. Sweeney asks after his daughter Joanna, and Mrs. Lovett says that Judge Turpin has been raising her as his ward. Sweeney Todd swears vengeance against both Judge Turpin and his lackey Beetle Bamford. Mrs. Lovett then offers Sweeney Todd his old razors back saying that he'll need a job to make money and survive. Sweeney then sings my friends about how perfect his razors feel in his hands. And after the first verse, Mrs. Lovett also joins in and sings about how she cares for Sweeney. The tones of their lyrics are extremely different from each other. And after an orchestral break, Sweeney then screams, at last my arm is complete again while holding up his razor, and it's so fun. The ensemble then comes back out to sing the ballad of Sweeney Todd once again. The scene then switches to Sweeney's daughter Joanna, now grown up, looking off the balcony of Judge Turpin's house at a man in the street selling caged pet birds. She sings the song Greenfinch and Linnet Bird about how she feels like a caged bird herself and envies the bird's ability to remain happy and singing despite their cages. As she sings, Antony walks by and sees Joanna on the balcony. 
Antony sings on this about how Joanna is more beautiful than anything he saw while sailing. He asks Joanna to look at him or notice him and wonders why she looks so sad. Just as Joanna does finally notice him, the beggar woman reappears, and Antony asks her who lives in Joanna's house. The beggar woman says it's Judge Turpin's house and tells him that the girl is his ward Joanna, but also warns him that the judge will whip him if he catches him lurking around. Antony buys one of the birds that Joanna was looking at, and the man selling the birds tells Antony that he blinds all the birds so that they don't know when it's day or night and consequently will always sing. Antony looks appropriately horrified about this. Joanna then comes down from the balcony. Joanna then comes down from the balcony and Anthony gives her the bird. He then sings Joanna, which is one of those numbers where it's just about how she was just so beautiful. And it's a fun song. He also says that he'll steal her away from the judge. However, halfway through the song, the judge and the beetle arrive and threaten Anthony to stay away from his house. Although Anthony's still super friendly to him, to them, the beetle snaps the bird's neck and says that it will be Anthony's neck next time. The judge then tells Joanna that she better not incur to Anthony any longer and gives her some super creepy compliments about how she, how pretty she is, which is weird considering the fact that he raised her and then he laughs cruelly. I just think it's so funny that he literally gives a stereotypical evil laugh here because nothing funny has happened. So it implies that he knows he's evil and enjoys it, which in my opinion brings him to a truly like tropey comic book-esque level of villainy. And I just appreciate that. Um, Anthony then finishes his song and swears that he'll get Joanna away from the judge. Sweeney, Mrs. Lovett, and Beetle Bamford are all standing around the barber shop of an Italian barber named Pirelli, who Mrs. Lovett says is the most popular barber in town recently. A young man named Toby stands in front of the shop and sings Pirelli's miracle elixir about how Pirelli created a hair potion that caused his hair to regrow after he went bald from some medical disease that is apparently very mysterious. Also, Toby... I think is supposed to be like a a very young child, but he's clearly played by like a 30 year old. So, you know, he is an age that is probably young, question mark. So Toby is selling these bottles of hair potion to the crowd for a penny each, and they're all just like eating it up. They love it. However, Sweeney points out to the crowd that the alleged potion is clearly piss mixed with ink, and the crowd catches on and demands to see Pirelli to question him about it and also demand a refund. I love this part. I just like the way they do the music, you know, where it's like blah, 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 and then he's like, smells like piss. I think it's piss, and it's like so funny because it's like deep. Yeah. Yeah. Also, I love that Sondheim says in his book, Finishing the Hat, that he never wants, like, ensemble members to sing in unison if it's not realistic for them to do so. So he only has them sing in unison after someone else says what they're about to sing first. So you hear Sweeney say, this is piss, piss with ink, and then, like, the crowd, like, repeats it back, and that's because Sondheim wanted their unison to be realistic because a crowd couldn't just completely on their own come up with all repeating the same thing at the same time. Uh, Pirelli then appears and starts the song The Contest by introducing himself. And he also speaks in this 
wild Italian accent. It's so stereotypical. I just know Italian people do not sound like this. I've never been to Italy, but I know they don't. (laughs) I bet you any Italian person watched this and they were like, what is this? What is this? This is offensive, is what? (laughs) Pirelli and Sweeney face off, with Sweeney claiming that that he's a common street mountebank and not the famous Italian barber Pirelli claims to be. And then he challenges Pirelli to a shaving competition. Pirelli notes how unique and beautiful Sweeney's razors are and and says that he wants them if he wins the competition, which Sweeney then agrees to. Sweeney asks Beetle Bamford to be the judge of the contest. And the contest begins with Pirelli dramatically singing about how good of a barber he is. But he's clearly hurting and annoying his client the whole time. Meanwhile, Sweeney spends the duration of Pirelli's solo sharpening his razor and then successfully shaves his clients in seconds while Pirelli is still showing off. The Beetle declares Sweeney to be the winner and Pirelli admits defeat. Mrs. Lovett then plugs Sweeney's new barbershop on the second floor of her pie shop to the crowd. You know, I'm just like imagining it like, you know, in 20 in the 21st century. And it's like, check out the barbershop on Fleet Street, you guys. Amazing. (laughs) The Beatle then says that he feels like he's seen Sweeney before, but Sweeney distracts him with flattery. Beetle Bamford then says that he'll come to Sweeney's barbershop before the end of the week, and Sweeney ominously promises the closest shave he'll ever receive. Then the ensemble sings another reprise of the Ballad of Sweeney Todd about how Sweeney is carefully making a plan and setting a trap. The scene shifts, and the beggar woman is outside Mrs. Lovett's pie shop asking for alms, and Mrs. Lovett chases her away. Mrs. Lovett goes up to Sweeney's new shop and says it needs better decoration, but Sweeney is busy complaining about the beetle not having come by yet. Mrs. Lovett then sings the song Wait about how patience and careful planning are important. Then, Antony bursts into the shop and congratulates Sweeney on his new storefront. He then tells Sweeney about how he's fallen in love with Joanna, who's given him the key to the judge's house. Antony has concocted a plan to steal her away that day while the judge is away at work, but he needs a place to bring Joanna until they can book passage out of London. Mrs. Lovett suggests he bring Joanna to her shop, and Sweeney agrees. Mrs. Lovett points out how perfect Antony's plan is for Sweeney, but Sweeney's just upset that Antony will immediately carry her away from him again. However, Mrs. Lovett says Sweeney should kill Antony so he can raise Joanna himself, as Mrs. Lovett says she would make a perfect mother. Then Pirelli arrives in Sweeney's shop and asks to speak to Sweeney alone. On Mrs. Lovett's way out, she grabs Toby, which is Pirelli's shop boy from earlier, and offers him a pie, saying he looks like he needs some kind words. After those two have left, Pirelli takes off his (laughs) Italian mustache, which turns out to have been fake. Um, even within the musical, we love, we love, uh, I was going to say a full circle moment almost, breaking the fourth wall. And then he says that his name is Daniel O'Higgins. I don't know why I said that with a British accent, because he's, he's Irish. He's actually Irish, but I can't do an Irish accent. Like, I I don't know how. So Daniel O'Higgins, aka Pirelli, he's Irish. Um, Italian accent, fake the whole time. Um, so... (laughs) (laughs) 
Pirelli, now Daniel, says that he expects Sweeney to give him half of his profits and calls him Benjamin Barker. Meanwhile, downstairs, Toby takes off his wig and reveals a much shorter haircut and says that it was part of Pirelli's con of the hair oil, trying to show off how good it was to growing hair. We go back upstairs and Daniel says that he used to be Sweeney's shop assistant, but he recognized Sweeney through his razors and knows that he was sentenced to life on a prison ship headed to Botany Bay in Australia. Daniel says that if Sweeney won't give him half his profits, he'll turn him in to Beetle Bamford. In response, Sweeney strangles him, as you do. Toby almost walks up to Sweeney's shop because he's worried about Pirelli being late to a tailoring appointment, so Sweeney shoves Pirelli's body into a chest in the corner of the room, with Pirelli slash Daniel's hand still sticking out of it. Toby eventually does walk up and is met by Sweeney at the door, who says that Pirelli was suddenly away. He wasn't lying. Toby enters anyway and sits on top of the chest with Daniel's hand, apparently not quite dead yet, and waves at him, which waves at him. Sweeney says to go ask Mrs. Lovett for a second pie and a glass of gin. Then Sweeney slits Daniel's throat with his razor. Once again, there's a reprise of the Ballad of Sweeney Todd and commemorates Sweeney Todd's first kill. The judge is then shown at court being extremely evil and sentencing people to death for no reason. He says he wants to close the court early that day because it's such a happy day for him. He tells the Beatle he's going to marry Joanna on Monday in order to, quote, shield her from the evils of the world, which is totally normal and not suspicious. However, he tells the Beatle that he's worried because Joanna seemed unhappy when he told her he wanted to marry her. I wonder why. <laughs> then the scene switches to Anthony and Joanna in the judge's house. In the song Kiss Me, Joanna tells Anthony that she's freaking out because the judge told her he wants to marry her on Monday and she's desperate to not marry him. Joanna says she will swallow a lie to avoid this fate, but Anthony offers the plan that she marry him instead and that they flee from London together. Throughout the song, Joanna is clearly less actually interested in Anthony than looking for just any reasonable alternative to marrying the judge. The scene then switches back to the judge and the Beatles' conversation, and Beatle sings the song Ladies in Their Sensitivities about how Joanna might like him better if he took care of his personal hygiene. The judge agrees, so the Beatles suggest that the judge goes to Sweeney's barbershop, saying that he witnessed how skilled he just witnessed how skilled Sweeney is. And the judge says that he will go to Sweeney's shop. And in the second half of the song, Anthony and Joanna sing their parts from Kiss Me, overlapping with the judge and Beatles' parts from Ladies in Their Sensitivities, as Joanna and Anthony solidify their plans to run to Paris. Toby still hasn't left Mrs. Lovett's pie shop because he's waiting for Pirelli slash Daniel, so Mrs. Lovett goes upstairs to ask Sweeney about what happened to him. Sweeney explains that he killed him and shows Mrs. Lovett the, bo- the body in the chest. She robs the body, but then tells Sweeney not to kill Toby. Then, Judge Turpin arrives at Sweeney's barbershop, much to Sweeney's excitement. Mrs. Lovett goes back downstairs, and Sweeney flatters the judge. Mrs. Lovett tells Toby that she's going to take care of him because Pirelli has abandoned him, and says she needs to go to the larder to get more alcohol. 
The judge starts the duet Pretty Women by saying that he needs to be made more attractive to woo Joanna. Within the lyrics of the song, the judge comments that Sweeney seems very happy, but Sweeney reassures him that he's just picking up on the judge's excitement. The two discuss how all a man needs is love and a pretty woman, with Sweeney clearly taking great joy in the judge's bare throat beneath him, singing a quick verse of My Friends again, referencing how he should take his time, as Mrs. Lovett told him in the previous song. However, the judge interrupts his reverie and tells him to move faster because he wants to marry Joanna, prompting Sweeney to comment that she must be as pretty as her mother before returning to the duet Pretty Women. Just as Sweeney is clearly about to kill the judge, Antony bursts into the room screaming about how he successfully made a plan to escape with Joanna. The judge, recognizing him from seeing him outside the house, screams about how Joanna is a deceiving slut who needs to be locked up so that Antony can never find her again. He then tells Sweeney that if he hangs out with people like Antony, he'll never come back to Sweeney's shop and storms out. I do love the song Pretty Woman. I think it's so pretty. It's nice. I like the tune. It's very pretty, but the context is so creepy that it manages to both be a beautiful song and absolutely spine-chilling. 100% agree. I agree. It's fun. Also, Anthony, dog, this man didn't even knock or nothing. Like, the it's not his house. I know, he just runs it. I mean, I guess it's a shop, so, like, yeah. maybe you don't knock on shop doors. And, like, it though. definitely adds to the plot, you know? Yeah, I mean, this like, has to happen, but also, can he not just, like, look into the room? I'm sure the there's windows. There? There's got to be a window. Look into the room. The judge is there. Do you say something about stealing the judge's ward? in front of the judge no. no also not even just a judge like what if sweeney had like a actual customer in there real, real you know like you can't trust anyone in london okay but he's young and naive didn't you listen to the first song <laughs> sweeney chases anthony out and then mrs lovett comes up again to try to comfort him she sings a few lines of wait again but in- instead of being comforted Sweeney blames Mrs. Lovett for encouraging him to be slow-moving that the judge escaped. He then sings the song Epiphany about how everyone deserves to die. He says that there are only two kinds of people, those who exploit and those who are exploited, and the first type deserve to be killed for being evil, and the second type lead such miserable existences that death will be relief for them. Sweeney begins pointing at audience members and invites them to visit his barbershop. He says that he will have his vengeance, and no number of deaths can assuage him because he'll never see Joanna or Lucy again. He finishes by claiming that he's alive, at last full of joy. Mrs. Lovett completely ignores this grandiose number and says the only thing that really matters is getting rid of Pirelli slash Daniel's body, which is still in the chest. She also points out that Toby's still downstairs and that she needs to figure out what to do with him. She goes to check on him and finds that he's asleep. Mrs. Lovett then starts the iconic Act 1 finale, A Little Priest, by suggesting that instead of disposing of Pirelli's body, she should use his body for her meat pies. Sweeney agrees bemusedly, and the two embark on a series of increasingly depraved and gleeful puns about what pies made with people from various occupations would taste like. By the end of the number, Sweeney and Mrs. Lovett have clearly formed a partnership in which Sweeney will provide Mrs. Lovett with bodies she can use for her pie business, 
and Mrs. Lovett continuously refers to Sweeney as her love. Such a a fun song. It's hilarious. I love it. I think what's really good about this musical is how it never takes itself too seriously. I could say things about the movie adaptation. Yeah. It's it's a little too serious, but this, no, it's camp. I'm sorry. (laughs) It's so funny. These puns are so funny. The part where they're aware that they're rhyming within the song and Sweeney forces Mrs. Lovett to have to not rhyme on a line on purpose, and that's the joke? That is brilliant. It is Sondheim at his absolute best, in my opinion. And then we get a lovely intermission title card. Yay! I love movies that have intermission title cards. None of them do. It hasn't been popular since like the 40s or 50s or something. But when they do, oh, it sparks joy. Act 2 opens with the song, God, That's Good with Toby selling Mrs. Lovett's pies. However, unlike the constantly empty shop that we saw in Act 1, Mrs. Lovett's pie shop is now filled with customers who demand more pies. Mrs. Lovett's also wearing much nicer and very gaudy clothes. However, in between the chorus's demands for more pies, Sweeney sings about the arrival of his new custom barber chair, which he rigs to dump the dead bodies into the basement of, for Mrs. Lovett to prepare. Mrs. Lovett also chases away the beggar woman again. Then, Anthony sings a reprise of Joanna, saying that he will find Joanna even though the judge is trying to hide her. Sweeney joins in and wondering what Joanna looks like since he's never seen her as an adult, but acknowledges that he'll probably never see her. And he seems at peace with this fact, having found fulfillment in his new work, murdering people. While singing, despite the major key and the general upbeat melody of the song, Sweeney Todd is slitting customer throats and tossing them into the basement with his new chair. Then, Mrs. Lovett builds up the furnace in the basement while the beggar woman stands outside and says that the smoke coming from this pie shop seems to be an omen of evil to her, and that she suspects Mrs. Lovett is up to no good, and says that she wants to tell the police but they don't believe her because she seems to be mentally ill. Joanna also joins in, sitting behind bars in a set with a sign labeled Fogg's Asylum, and she mourns that Anthony was not able to help her escape. Despite the string of murders committed in the song, they're all played for laughs, with Sweeney acting upset when one customer is accompanied by his young daughter, and he's not able to kill the customer. So Anthony stands outside Fogg's Asylum, and the beetle runs into him there. Anthony complains to the beetle that Joanna's been locked up, but is not insane. However, the beetle says that he himself took Joanna to the asylum, and that he will arrest Anthony if he doesn't leave Joanna alone. Anthony complains that the police are corrupt and evil, because ACAB. Anthony agrees. Slay. Mrs. Lovett is counting up her earnings for the day and saying that she recently used her new money to buy a harmonium, which apparently is like an organ, perhaps? Unclear. Uh, from a burnt-down church. Sweeney sits in the corner and acts disinterested and says that he's considering how to kill the judge when Mrs. Lovett asks why he isn't excited for her. 
Mrs. Lovett sings By the Sea about how she imagines the two of them retiring to a quiet life in a seaside cottage after they make enough money off their murder-slash-cannibalism business. Mrs. Lovey even suggests opening a bed and breakfast that Sweeney could murder people at. Mrs. Lovett clearly envisions herself marrying Sweeney, but he's largely ignoring her song, generically agreeing occasionally. Mrs. Lovett eventually kisses him, but he doesn't react at all and says that he needs revenge. Same. <laughs> then Anthony bursts into the room and tells Sweeney that Joanna is in Fogg's asylum. Sweeney is unexpectedly happy and says that wig makers always get their hair from people in asylums. In the song, Wig Maker Sequence, Sweeney quickly concocts a plan to have Anthony pose as a wig maker, request Joanna's hair, and then break her out. The ensemble then sings a verse to the tune of The Ballad of Sweeney Todd, saying that Sweeney would never wait too long again. Sweeney also gives Anthony a gun and reminds him to kill if necessary. He also writes a letter to Judge Turpin saying that Anthony has kidnapped Joanna from the asylum, but that Sweeney is trying to help the judge and has managed to convince Anthony to bring Joanna to his shop, inviting the judge there to come get her. Mrs. Lovett is knitting Toby a scarf, and Toby tells Mrs. Lovett how grateful for her he is, especially compared to how mean Pirelli was to him previously. Toby says he would do anything to protect Mrs. Lovett, implying that he thinks Sweeney is luring Mrs. Lovett into an evil plan, clearly unaware that Mrs. Lovett was mostly the creator of said plan. Toby sings the song Not While I'm Around, reiterating this feeling and saying nothing will harm Mrs. Lovett if he can prevent it. Then, Toby notices that Mrs. Lovett carries Pirelli's coin purse and insists that this is proof that Sweeney killed Pirelli since he would never give up any money, despite Mrs. Lovett's insistence that Sweeney probably just bought the purse from a pawn shop. Mrs. Lovett tells Toby that since he's such a good boy, he can help her make the pies that day, and takes Toby down into the basement with the furnace and the meat grinder. I think it's even funnier, because, like, Toby's, like, old. Oh, a whole adult. <laughs> a whole adult. They're treating this man like he is 12, okay? Yeah. Because I'm pretty sure the character is supposed to be, like, 12, yeah. and they're like... Hello, 30-year-old man. (laughs) (laughs) Mrs. Lovett tells Toby how to use the grinder and puts him to work. Then she leaves and goes upstairs to find Beetle Bamford in her shop. He starts playing Mrs. Lovett's new harmonia, and he tells her that there have been complaints about a foul stench from her chimney every night, and that he needs to look in the basement to investigate. Mrs. Lovett says that it's locked and only Sweeney has the key so he can't get into the basement. Then, Sweeney arrives, and Mrs. Lovett suggests that he gets a shave from Sweeney before investigating the basement. Worried that the beetle might scream if any difficulties arrive, Mrs. Lovett decides to play the harmonia and sing, starting the song Parlor Songs. Meanwhile, in the basement, Toby finds a human hair and fingernail in the meat he is grinding and starts to get really scared. However, when he tries to leave, he realizes that he's been locked in the basement. Just then, Sweeney dumps the beetle's body down the chute right at Toby's feet, terrifying him. Sweeney reappears and announces to Mrs. Lovett that the beetle is dead, but Mrs. Lovett explains that Toby knows everything and has been locked in the basement. However, Sweeney says that he can't deal with it right now because the judge is on his way. 
The ensemble reappears to kick off the final sequence, a 15-minute long song that contains the entire climax of the musical in grand Sondheim fashion, because he loves a good 15-minute long song. This sequence starts with another reprise of the Ballad of Sweeney Todd. Then, Antony arrives at the asylum and meets Fogg, who is very creepy and describes all the patients as his children, but in a creepy way. A drop cloth drops down over the action, so it's only visible to the audience in silhouette. Antony gets Joanna and threatens to shoot Fogg with his gun, but when shooting Fogg is actually necessary, he says he can't do it. Joanna rips the gun away from Antony and shoots Fogg herself. All the inmates escape the asylum and pick up the beggar woman's earlier song about the city being on fire. Joanna reminds Antony of his promise to marry her with the melody from Kiss Me. Meanwhile, Sweeney and Mrs. Lovett search for Toby in the deep cellars beneath the shop, but cannot find him. The beggar woman notices that the beetle went into Mrs. Lovett's shop, but never came out, and she describes Mrs. Lovett as wicked. Joanna, now dressed as a sailor boy, along with Antony, arrive at Sweeney's shop, and Antony says she should stay there alone while he goes to book them passage on a ship. Joanna is unhappy to be left alone, but is soothed by Antony's promise to soon wed her in France. Joanna climbs into a chest to hide from the beggar woman looking for the beetle. The beggar woman enters Sweeney's shop and replicates Lucy's choreography from the song Poor Thing, revealing to the audience that she is in fact Sweeney's allegedly dead wife, Lucy. However, when Sweeney arrives, he continues to not recognize her despite her repeated mentioning of having seen him before. The judge approaches the shop, and Sweeney says he has no time to deal with the beggar woman, so he slits her throat, accompanied by the world's most dramatic orchestral piece. It's so dramatic. There's so many strings and organ. It's great. I love it. Sweeney dumps her body down the chute into the basement just in time as the judge walks in, and Sweeney says that he has Joanna waiting downstairs and that Joanna longs for the judge's forgiveness and can't wait to see him. The two sing a reprise of Pretty Women, but in a much higher tempo, as Sweeney gives the judge a shave to allegedly make him more prepared to meet Joanna. Sweeney finally reveals himself to be Benjamin Barker and kills the judge, slitting his throat and dumping him down the chute into the basement. Sweeney then sings a reprise of My Friends, saying that the razors can rest at last before suddenly remembering that Toby is still at large. When he re-enters his shop, Joanna has climbed out of the trunk and she, still disguised as a sailor boy, claims that she's a client wanting a shave. However, Sweeney knows that she saw him murder the judge and goes to murder her. Just then, Mrs. Lovett screams loudly from the basement and Joanna escapes because of the distraction. The judge had not fully died when Sweeney tossed him down the chute, so he had grabbed onto Mrs. Lovett's leg, causing her to scream. As she checks that the judge is now fully dead, Mrs. Lovett notices the body of the beggar woman slash Lucy and screams that this is the worst body to be right there now and tries to drag Lucy into the furnace before Sweeney gets there. However, when Sweeney arrives and when Mrs. Lovett's clumsy attempts to keep Sweeney away from Lucy's body fails, Sweeney realizes that he has just killed his beloved wife. Sweeney screams and cries before accusing Mrs. Lovett of knowing that Lucy was alive the entire time and lying to him. 
She then defends herself by saying she never lied. She told Sweeney that Lucy had poisoned herself, which she did, leading to her mental illness, but that Mrs. Lovett never technically told Sweeney that Lucy had died. She then admits to being deeply in love with Sweeney, leading to her plan to keep him from Lucy, saying that she'd be a better wife than Lucy ever was. Sweeney then abruptly changes the mood and begins, begins to praise Mrs. Lovett and dances with her, and she's absolutely eating this up. She th he then dances her right into the furnace and closes the doors on her, burning her alive. Sweeney then walks back to Lucy's body and cries over it, singing a reprise of A Barber and His Wife. Toby stumbles back towards all the carnage, murdering nursery rhymes nonsensically. He then chastises Todd for the murders, but Todd largely ignores him, and Toby picks up Sweeney's razor and slits Sweeney's throat with it as the police rush in, brought in by Anthony and Joanna. Toby tells the police that the meat needs to be ground, apparently experiencing a mental break as a result of the trauma he's just been through. Toby starts the final reprise of the Ballad of Sweeney Todd as the characters tell us to attend the tale of Sweeney Todd, now using the meaning of attend as in pay attention to slash learn from, as they warn the audience of the dangers of being consumed by revenge and implying that there are many like Sweeney out there. Sweeney and Mrs. Lovett reappear to finish out the song and say that, although many seek revenge, no one does it as well as Sweeney Todd. And then there's, you know, all the bows and stuff, and I just think it's funny that Angela Lansbury gets the last bow at Curtain Call instead of George Hearn as Sweeney Todd, even though he's clearly the main character. And of course she does, because she's Angela Lansbury, and she's a legend, and she deserves it. Okay, let's take a quick break. <laughs> Hi, this is Elizabeth Crane just chiming in to say please rate our podcast five stars and leave a written review if you have a spare second. This is the metric that a lot of podcast apps use to track which podcasts are being listened to a lot. So we would really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Thank you. Welcome back from our break. So we're now going to analyze some of our favorite parts of this musical why it's queer, etc. So this was based on the Penny Dreadful String of Pearls, like we mentioned earlier, and it's likely intended as an anti-industrialization statement because it was written during the Industrial Revolution and is set in London, which was sort of the center of this new situation. And a lot of these Penny Dreadfuls were like, loosely anti-industrialization not necessarily in like a super purposeful way just in a this is bad you guys kind of way so it's set on fleet street which was one of the busiest most industrial parts of the city and essentially the commentary is that the factory workers are so replaceable that no one even noticed how many murders sweeney todd commits because factories treated workers like they were disposable and didn't care about them at all Oh, that makes sense. I was wondering. That makes sense. Wow. What a commentary. <laughs> this is added to by the constant use of factory whistles in the scores, especially during the murders. And it does 
as Dahlia was saying, make the plot of the musical just make a little more sense. Because without this background, it's just like, wouldn't he get caught? But that's sort of the point. The people in this musical do not care enough, including the police, to notice this serial killer being completely insane. And it's just so interesting because there's so many cops in this musical. They're walking on the streets in the street scenes. Beetle Bamford is a main character, and he's sort of cop-adjacent, I think. And <laughs> and they just no one notices or cares or checks in, ever. And also, I think it's worth pointing out that Sondheim describes it as a fable, added onto by the constant use of the ensemble singing the ballad of Sweeney Todd. And it's not necessarily supposed to be like super realistic. It's meant to be a fable. So it's telling a life lesson in an allegorical fashion. Don't be consumed by revenge, you guys. Or do. (laughs) Or do. But they say don't. You can't do it as good as Sweeney Todd. Oh, never. No. 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 He's just the best. So cool. I want to be like him when I grow up. Oh, my God. <laughs> Sondheim would hate that for us. <laughs> he really would. He'd be like, you guys are missing the point completely. I got too distracted by how cool the musical was. Literally. Like, you can sing cool songs and get revenge and maybe die. Sign me up. Sign me up. I am down. Do I get cool theme music? Yes. Then I'm down. A hundred percent, you know? Like, do I get to break the fourth wall at the beginning, you know? Yeah. Breaking the fourth wall. I love breaking the fourth wall. I love breaking the fourth wall. I do that in real life. (laughs) (laughs) What is the fourth wall in real life? It's the imaginary camera always playing. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, because this is the Truman Show. Mm, Good point. Yeah. Good point. I'm just insane. (laughs) That's what we've gotten from this conversation is that me, Dahlia Kumar, is insane. Mm, you know, I would dispute it, but I don't have the energy to do that. <laughs> okay, listen. If you guys don't know me, you don't know that I am obsessed with Sondheim. That's like my two interests, right? It's like horror movies and Stephen Sondheim. That's it, okay? And he's just... This musical is like the best of Sondheim. Like he's known for using this wordplay and putting all this detail into his lyrics to the point where the main criticism of him is that he's like going too hard. That's like the main criticism people have for him. And here it works so perfectly. The amount of like wordplay and double meanings utilized in this musical is astronomical. And I like I think that's why it works so well. Like I don't think anyone but Sondheim could have done such a good job with Sweeney Todd because it's about such a like morbid and like like sad and scary subject. But then here he is with his songs with rhymes and alliteration and you're like, Wow, this is camp. You know? <laughs> it just works really well because like you don't get bored as an audience and you like, you start to care about the characters, even though, like, most of them are definitely not black and white. Mm-hmm. And most of them, if not, most of them do do horrendous activities. But you're like, Sweeney Todd, I want you to get revenge. Yeah, you're rooting for him. Yeah. Even though he's awful. No, he sucks. <laughs> and one trivia fact I remembered from reading Finishing That, listen, I 
I have finishing the hat, but I'm in my dorm room right now and I have it at my house. So I couldn't reread it for this podcast. I'm really mad about it. But one thing I remember from reading it is that he was really disappointed he had to invent the name of Kiri's Lane as the street the judge lives on because he needed something that both like scanned into the rhythm of the song normally and he wanted it to sound noticeably fancy. And he said that he like poured over a ton of historical street maps of London but couldn't find anything real that fit. And I just remember he was so mad that he had to make up a street name because all the other like places mentioned were real Victorian London locations. But yeah, apparently Curie's Lane is not real, but Fleet Street is. And I went to London uh, like a long time ago, many years ago, and I remember being on Fleet Street and there's a bunch of barbershops and pubs on that street that are named like Sweeney Todd's and they have like razor posters, you know. I loved it. It was so funny. I took so many pictures. Would you, if if you had a beard, would you (laughs) go to a barbershop on Fleet Street? Yes, because I think it would be funny. Yeah. But I'd take a friend, you know. I'd be like the one guy in Joanna where he has the daughter daughter with him so that I couldn't get murdered. Maybe if it's like final season, I'd go alone, you know. (laughs) If I get taken out during final season, do not resurrect me. It's what God intended. Also, my favorite fact about this musical is that so Sondheim wrote the music and the lyrics, right? So in the music, you know the like medieval hymn Dies Irae that represents like fate and like incoming doom so that theme of those like four notes is hidden throughout the musical in the score of the musical and it's fairly over some of the time like when someone dies when there's like a mention of death it's like oh yeah that's the dearest eerie theme but it's also very very subtly played like in reverse order with the notes like flipped upside down on the staff, things like that, when a character who will die is introduced or something like that where Sondheim wants to foreshadow that something a little spooky will happen in the future. That's fun. I like that because then, I mean, I always like things you can rewatch and then you can like see all of these hidden meanings that you didn't see before and that definitely adds to that in this musical. I mean... Like, I, I will rewatch this musical, like, so many okay. times. Because, like, every time there's something new in, like, whether it's, like, the characters or the lyrics or something that just, like, rechanges It changes the way I view it. And I definitely think that this adds to that. Yeah. No, and another sort of similar thing is there's only two characters that the flute has a solo for, and it's Lucy and Joanna. So it's telling you that, like, Joanna is, like, related to the bigger woman because they're the only ones that there's little, like, flute cues for, um, which I also think is really interesting. I also want to talk about Joanna as a character because I think it's really easy to watch this musical and to be like, oh, that's the exact same character as Cosette. Like, That's what I was thinking about, you know? She she has this aura of, oh, I'm that, like, 18-year-old blonde Victorian girl in every musical. Mm-hmm. But I think 
Sondheim does a very good job of developing her and making her slightly murderous in a very fun way. I liked that it was her that shot the guy and not Anthony. Exactly. Like, that was a fun detail to add because it goes to show that, like, she's not a broken bird who's, like, sitting in a cage waiting for someone to rescue her. She will take matters into her own hands when she can. Exactly. So it develops Joanna as ruthless, but keeps Anthony's character development as he's sweet and naive. So it actually fits her character much better than his, mm-hmm. even though if you're like casually watching this musical, you might think it would make more sense for Anthony's character to be developed mm-hmm. that way, but it doesn't. 100%. And I think it's also like, oh... She is the child of Sweeney Todd. Exactly. That's, it's in her genes. Yeah, that's definitely what the musical is implying. Mm-hmm. Is that like, oh, she's like also evil. Yeah. You know, that sort of thing. She's not who you think. She's not. That's what every single Sweeney Todd family member isn't. Because like Mrs. Lovett, we, we see who she is at face value. Same with, I mean, like not face value, but kind of face value. Because you kind of get an understanding of her character. Like same with the judge, the beetle, Pirelli. I guess Pirelli was kind of like, ooh. Uh, Toby um, and Anthony. But then Lucy... Sweeney Todd and Joanna, they're all kind of hiding something. They are, yeah. And they're all related. Mm -hmm. So Stephen Sondheim um, was a gay man who was in the closet most of his life because that was necessary to succeed in, like, the entertainment industry during his lifetime. And I think it's really interesting to look at his art because, like, very little of it particularly speaks directly to, like, a queer audience. Like, he's not someone like William Finn who wrote musicals about being gay in, like, this time period. Like, Sondheim doesn't really do that, but he's still... Uh, a gay man trying to deal with things like the AIDS crisis that are these massive events in queer history that happened during his lifetime and while he was sort of at the height of his success on Broadway. So I think it's really interesting to analyze how that impacts art like Sweeney Todd where you don't necessarily look at any of the characters and are like, oh, this has like a queer influence. But it does. Mm -hmm. No, I completely agree. I think you can... You can definitely see it in the theme of the whole thing because, like, it's about obsession and revenge, you know? And then especially during a... Like, this is my theory. Especially during a time like the AIDS crisis where if you are a queer person, you're probably likely to feel some sort of resentment towards, you know, like, how society's treating you. And because it's, it's valid because they're treating you like trash, like... It's valid to have that resentment build up inside of you. And at least my theory is that, in a way, Sondheim is trying to be like, don't let revenge consume you. You know, don't let your resentment consume you because there's still more to life. That makes a lot of sense because the whole theme of the uh, musical is very anti-establishment if you read it as this sort of like, Victorian anti-industrial revolution situation and maybe that's not the most relevant to the 80s okay it's not the industrial revolution anymore but 
people are still being exploited by employees or employers, sorry. <laughs> people are still being exploited by employers. And I think that as a queer person, sometimes those are these marginalized groups that are more likely to see a system that doesn't take care of its employees or its like working class people as something that is dangerous because it was looking down on classes of people that was so harmful during the AIDS crisis. And this did sort of come out during the AIDS crisis. Like, this movie came out during 1982, but I do think when we say during the AIDS crisis, we also have to remember that it takes, like, 400 years to write a musical, so this may have been written pre-AIDS crisis. I don't really know. I don't know what the timeline was on that. (laughs) Alright, so another way that the uh, Sondheim may have been influenced by his queerness in writing this musical is the character of Mrs. Lovett. Um, It's sort of stereotypical, but there is this idea that queer men uh, enjoy writing powerful or empowered women. Um, And Mrs. Lovett is certainly, like, the most iconic role in this musical, despite it literally being called Sweeney Todd. Um, Everyone always remembers the actresses who have played this role, and no one knows who the male actors who have played this role are. And it's because she has a lot of the more interesting like emotional beats throughout the show she's more fun and upbeat she's clearly just as deranged as sweeney she's the one who's egging him on yeah if not more you know because like at least sweeney you know we can like they both have reasons but like sweeney's you know it's built up like it's like oh he loved his wife, the judge raped her, stole his kid, you know, it's this whole thing. And then Mrs. Lovett is literally like, man, I think, I think Benjamin Barker, he's kind of fine though. Like, she's just a simp. Yeah, she, she has no logic or reason and that's what makes her so fun. It, she seems so unmoored from reality in a very compelling way. And she has all of these amazing solos that Angela Lansbury knocks out of the park. Did such a good job. It's, it's really like her, her character is probably the most crazy character in this entire musical. Oh, for sure. The most way crazy. Way more than yeah. Sweeney. Yeah. Because like, it's also like, like, you can understand where Sweeney's coming from. Like, once mm-hmm. again, her, she's just like, yeah, let's bake them into pies. Bake them into pies. I so also think that cannibalism is so much further out from murder, right? Because murder is awful, but, like, it does happen in the real world. Yeah. No one is cannibal. No one thinks no one that does firsthand. That. Yeah, no and one And she's is. like, hmm, I wonder what a little priest tastes like. And it's like, okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> Like, girl boss. Okay. Like, anything for you, queen. (laughs) She's so fun. So, yeah, I think there is something to be said for this sort of Broadway trope of uh, a diva at the center of your musical, like Angela Lansbury or some of the many other actresses who have played this role, like Patti LuPone, who take on sort of a queer perspective. I don't think Mrs. Lovett would have been as amazing as she is, if not for Sondheim, literally doing everything he can to get Angela, uh, to get Angela Lansbury to 
accept the role of Mrs. Lovett. Because, like, he literally wrote songs for her. And I think that expanded Mrs. Lovett so much and became the character she is now. The Worst Pies in London is the song. I'm sorry. Honestly, <laughs> it hits. It, it's, you know, I already said the line, the popping pussies into pies. pies. I'm like, the alliteration. Yes. It's so fun. <sighs> yeah. Uh, and she's just, she's like, yeah, I have the worst pies. But and I can't catch cats. I can't do that. But That's hard. Here I am. And I'm like, go off, you know. Also, can we just take a moment to appreciate the Stephen Sondheim and Angela Lansbury cameo in Glass Onion? It yeah. was so cute. I screamed a little in the theater, um, because I saw it in theaters and my friend had to tell me to shut up. Um <laughs> it's okay. Later she screamed and I had to tell her to shut up, so it was like fair, you know? Yeah. Um, but I just think that was so sweet, and it was both of their, like, last appearances before they passed away, mm-hmm. and I was like, it's them! And they were playing Among Us, which was so stupid, but I loved it. Was so oh. Everything. That was- so, we should probably talk about the fact that this is fully just a stage musical rather than a movie. We know it's a movie review podcast, but hey... Listen, it was filmed. Okay, that makes it a movie. Sorry. Um, so, all right. As a stage musical, obviously that's a very different format than a film. So I think that sort of forced them to go a bit light on the horror elements, despite this being an extremely grisly, horrifying story, since everything has to occur with stage effects that they can do every single night on a stage with a live audience. So I think that led to some of the murders, not all of them, but some of them being played for comedy, like the scene in Joanna that we've referenced a couple of times. Um, But it does go hard into the horror when it needs to, like with Judge Turpin and how he treated Todd and Lucy in the backstory. He's incredibly creepy. Also, we have to consider that the horror probably would have been more compelling in this live setting. Like, people say when there's, like, interviews about what makes Sweeney Todd so good, people who have seen it live always say that when Sweeney starts pointing into the crowd during Epiphany, people physically, like, shrink into their seats and are terrified that he's going to point at them. No, honestly, I think that's such a fun bit of choreography to have. Because, I mean, we already know that this musical doesn't shy away from breaking the fourth wall. It did literally the first song. First song. And then here, it's literally talking about murdering people, and it breaks the fourth wall again. And it's such a good tactic, because not only does it keep the audience engaged, because they're like, fuck, I don't want this to me be, but it's... It kind of it kind of just goes to show that he is kind of crazy and it could happen to anyone. And once again like when we go back to like industrialization and all of that like how many like most of us were normal people. We're working class people. We're going to go see this cool gory musical, you know? And I feel like it's kind of also being like this could happen to you. Watch out. Watch out when you're working your 9 to 5 job. Sucks. Anyways, <laughs> That was my spiel. 
Also, it's worth noting that the music does a lot of the heavy lifting in terms of setting a tone for this. So things like the pipe organ, the factory whistles, the fact that for a musical which has to cram everyone into an orchestra pit, this has a lot of musicians. It has a very large full orchestra in that pit, uh, and that really helps to add on the sense of pervasive dread throughout this musical because it is hard to invoke that with a smaller orchestra, which I think has been proven to be part of what makes this so amazing because there was a revival in 2005 um, with Patti Lapone as Angela Lansbury. Listen, Patti Lapone, the greatest of all time. I will never dispute that. Her yelling at people to put on a mask, iconic. Yelling people to stop filming her on the phone, iconic. All of her performances, top-notch. However, besides the presence of the one and only Patti Lapone, this revival, I'm just not a fan of it because they reorchestrated it because the concept of the production was for it to be Brechtian with minimal staging and this meant that they changed the orchestra to just be a pianist and then whatever actors were not currently on stage would play instruments. Did they force Patti Lapone to play a tuba? Yes. Was that camp? A little. However, other than the absolutely comedic take of having Patti Lapone play a tuba, this was not good. That just sounds like too much. All that, like, it, like, it was not enough. What do you sounds, mean too much? No, like too much for like the actors, you know? Mm, yeah. It just sounds yeah. incredibly chaotic and just hard to do. It does. But also it meant that in these really key moments, there were like a pianist and a cellist playing. And that does not give you that grandiose sound that makes moments like Lucy's death so effective and so horrifying they could not achieve the same effect however there's a new revival going to Broadway like right now and they put back the full orchestrations we're getting a full orchestra and I could not be more excited I want to see it so badly will I get a chance to see it probably not because I'm not rich I don't live near New York City like it's not gonna happen for me and I accept that but I want to see it so badly. <laughs> Me too. Because this is literally, like, as I said, this is one of my favorite musicals. I would die. I would be in his chair if I could see it live. God. It would be really cool. It would be. Yeah. Uh, there is a movie adaptation of this, and it's very Tim Burton. His vibes everywhere. Um... We didn't do it because Johnny Depp is problematic and he does play Sweeney Todd. Um, but I do love Alan Rickman as the judge. It's um, true. It's yeah. true. I, yeah. Sondheim did say that this was the only movie adaptation of his that he found successful because it was the only one that made full use of film being such a different medium, which makes sense. And it's good because I feel like a lot of times, you know, when there are film adaptations of musicals, they it either goes too much of one way. It goes too yeah. much. They try to keep the musical element of it, which is like, I understand. And then too much in the like 
let's just make this a film. Yeah. Um, but definitely, I definitely really like the movie because of the sets and, like, the costume design. And it did a fun job of trying to balance both aspects mm-hmm. of film and musicals. Yeah, yeah. I, think I think the think scene that's really commonly cited is Epiphany, when he goes and walks out on the street and all the people are frozen in place and he's pointing at them and saying, I'm going to kill him later, I'm going to kill him later. Um, People cite that as a really great example of how they took something that was already successful on stage and they turned it into something that you couldn't do on stage that works really well on film. Mm -hmm. And I think it's moments like that that made Sondheim make that comment. It's also worth noting that I think this is a pretty old comment, so I don't know how he feels about the more recent adaptations of his musicals and I also think this was long before um the like Depp Amber Heard nonsense Mm -hmm. like obviously Sondheim was not like oh creepy people yay um it was long long ago um but yeah I think the movie overall is like fine we just didn't really want to cover it because there's so many like problems in that situation at the moment However, I still think the stage version is way superior, if for no other reason than because the vocal performances are just so incredible in the stage version. Like, why would you go listen to, like, Depp and Carter go like this the whole time when you can go listen to Angela Lansbury kill it? No, I totally agree. And I mean, I feel like this is the same thing for, like, a lot of film adaptations of musicals is... If something is written to be a musical, it's just really hard to do it better than what has already been done. Oh, for sure. So, you know, they did a good job trying to, but it's hard to achieve that. Mm -hmm. Definitely do prefer the stage version. I really enjoyed watching it. Yeah, Yeah. I agree. Um, There's been so many stage productions of this, and a lot of them have been really cool. So I just wanted to talk about some of the ones that... I'm aware of and how they've made different decisions that sort of gave them different vibes and stuff. So we already talked about the 2005 revival, but then there was also a concert version with Patti Lapone and George Hearn. And honestly, I adore this version. It's not fully staged, but it's mostly staged. And it has the full orchestra, like, visible on stage, which I love as a classical musician. It's so fun to watch. Um, and just Patti Lapone existing, like, it's perfect, you know? Patti Lapone as Mrs. Lovett is really one of my favorite things, like, ever. Um, then there's the current revival, which we can't say too much about because it hasn't really happened yet, but it's looking, it's looking cool. Um, and then there was this other really cool production that I believe was off-Broadway that had an all-Asian cast and starred Leah Salonga as Mrs. Lovett. And I just think that's really cool because obviously minorities have been severely like undercast on Broadway. And in the production we watched, like everyone was white. So I think it's really cool to see productions like this one highlight people of color um, and give iconic actresses like Leah Salonga these opportunities and obviously like less famous actors that need to break out into these cool roles as well yeah that's fine okay so every week or every episode we rank are these movies on a scale of how queer we think they are and how much we enjoyed them overall um so 
on a scale of 1 to 10 in terms of queerness, I would give this like a 3 out of 10 because it has a queer writer and composer, um, but I don't necessarily think the topics tackled within the subject come off as queer. However, I do think it's important to acknowledge that it was literally created by a queer person. Yeah, I was going to give it a 2 out of 10 for the same reasons. Um, Go off Sondheim. But unless you didn't know that Sondheim was gay, you probably wouldn't... Like, at face value, you probably wouldn't see the queerness in this film. Um, On a scale of 1 to 10 on how much I enjoyed this, I'm just going to give this a 10. Like, as a movie, like, I don't know, it's probably not that great. But as a stage musical... Um, 10 out of 10. This is the most perfect thing to ever happen. Sorry. Um, sorry if that's uh, a bold claim, considering this is a movie podcast. I don't really care. No, I was also going to give it a 10. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, I had a lot of fun. Um, I mean, I already knew I would, because this is my favorite musical. But it's fun. 10 out of 10. Every episode, we connect the film we did one week to the film we're doing in the next episode, through some random connection we find, um, like an actor, a theme, a director, I don't know, whatever we're feeling. So our connection to the next episode is going to be cannibalism. Queer by Candlelight is a podcast hosted, created, and edited by Elizabeth Crane and Dahlia Kumar. Cover art by Dahlia Kumar. Music by Elizabeth Crane. Music recorded by Elizabeth Crane and Ryan Allegretti. With special thanks to Carlos Myers for help with music composition. Mm-hmm.